Rush Limbaugh calls a woman a slut. Is Tiger Woods a Navy SEAL? Putin steals the election. John and Kate plus eight won't leave us alone. The march to war with Iran continues. And my guest, three-time Emmy winner and star of Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston and I talk acting, morality, brain science, 70 sex, politics, good versus evil, making meth, and why he's been pushing drugs since early in his career. All this and more during the Last Week on Earth with Ben How many sides does a triangle have? Damn, four. There's no side. One. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. This is Last Week on Earth with Ben Glebe. I'm Ben Glebe. Thank you all for listening to the show if, if you're listening right now and if you're not listening right now you, you go screw yourself because you, i can't even you know it doesn't even matter that you're not listening because i can't even talk to you so i'm done talking to you i've been on meth all week to prepare for my guest brian cranston is here today for last week on earth i'm very very excited breaking bad is my favorite show on television it's an amazing program and uh, I have not slept for six days. I've been so wired on hardcore drugs. Um, good stuff, you know, top grade stuff that I, I, uh, I am a wreck and it's going to make for an interesting interview. I'm not on drugs, guys. Okay. I'm not on meth. Maybe I am. You be the judge as the interview unfolds. I don't think I am, but maybe I forgot because I'm so on drugs. I don't know. Our show this week's brought to you by meth. It's like those flavor crystals they used to have in that gum. Only it's a crazy addictive drug that'll fuck up your life and make your teeth fall out. Plus, you can't chew it. Meth. We make crack look look as tame as weed. So that's what we do here at Meth. I have an apology this week. Um, during the episode with Ben Savage last week, um, uh, at one point I asked him a question where I, I asked him what it was like to have, or asked him if he was killed. In a uh, in that uh, car accident, that there was a rumor that he was killed in, and I didn't credit the question was was actually inspired by someone suggesting that I ask that on Twitter, George Diab at G E E D I A B. Uh, but when I asked the question during the podcast, I remembered that but I didn't have the note in front of me, and I didn't want to misquote it, and I didn't therefore quote it at all, and I apologize. So there's that. Uh, he called me out on Twitter about that and hashtag disappointed, hashtag no credit, hashtag not really disappointed. So that was nice for him to at least be cool about it. But I'm sorry, George. Um, Brian Cranston is going to be here. It's very exciting for me. I already said that, but I'm saying it again because I just can't hardly believe it. Um, why did I say that? So can't hardly believe it. Why did I say that in such a weird tone of voice? I have no idea. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Glebe, hashtag last week on earth to ask me questions or suggest things for the show. YouTube.com slash B Glebe. 
If you want to check out my YouTube channel, or I'm also on Facebook and Tumblr and all that good stuff, I'll be at Comedy Juice Hollywood March 14th, Ice House March 22nd, Irvine Improv March 27th, all those in the Comedy Juice shows, then in Indianapolis at Morty's March 29th through 31st. You can get all these dates reminded to you at bengleeb.com. Um The one story I'd like to cover before I bring Brian Cranston on, I'm going to do one story, and then Twitter answers, and then bring on Brian, is something very, it's it's momentous. It's large. I don't know how to contain my enthusiasm. John and Kate plus eight is back. It's back, everybody. Um, I saw an ad for that during this last week, and I was ecstatic. I was moved to tears. Um, John and Kate plus eight is the exact opposite of Breaking Bad. It is a shitty, stupid reality show about idiots. Who are empty headed, don't do anything, they don't even do anything interesting, they don't even cook drugs, they don't even have like adult jobs, they do nothing worth nothing. And the parents are selfish assholes. The father, John Gosland, is all about clubbing and wearing earrings and tiger shirts. And the mom is the most self absorbed, Kate Gosland is the most self absorbed person. She's a mother of eight. I'm gonna play you an ad, okay, for the show coming back. And in the 30 second ad, just please count the number of times she refers to herself, says I, I've, I'm, me, some shit like that, refers to herself in 30 seconds. This Monday, John and Kate Plus 8 is back. (laughs) As a new chapter begins. Kind of like the beginning of the new me. They face new challenges. What planet do you live on? And new adventures. No! We have to start over. How will they handle being apart? I have a new attitude. It's the I can do. I'm going to do things I have never done before. John and Kate Plus 8, two all-new episodes, Monday at 9, only on TLC. That was four just in that last sentence. I'm going to do things I never thought of, and then I won't even pay attention to my children. It's amazing. The whole show is about having eight children and the enormous responsibility, and you'd assume the enormous amount that you have to be giving and loving. I, the only sentence she said that didn't have I in it was, what planet are you from? Clearly not my planet, where I do things that I'd like to do. That's not the planet I'm from is where you do things that you want to do. That's not me. I'm, I have kids. Where? Where are these kids? I asked a question on Twitter this week, uh, a breaking bad themed question. I said, what is the worst or weirdest or most embarrassing thing you've ever done for money? Hashtag last week on earth. Got some interesting answers. Um, at JK underscore four underscore seven, spell them out. Um, said, Weirdest, once in Amsterdam, I fixed a hooker's bike chain. She paid me with a sweet pair of jeans. Still have them. I think you should should have just said, keep the jeans. Because hooker jeans? This is a dude that replied this. Uh, he, It's a female. He couldn't even wear the jeans unless he's a very skinny dude or it was a very large hooker. But regardless, the crotch area of those jeans have hooker juices on them. I really wish he would have kept that in mind. If you're listening now, and you probably are JK47, burn the jeans. I think hooker juices can live forever. So I'd, I'd be careful with that. At Loopy Mom 3 said, I once had a going out of a marriage sale. That is uh, a good move. I think when, 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 when things end like that, you got stuff left. Why not sell it and split it 50-50? If you live in California, they're going to make you give up half of it anyway. Why not make a little extra cash in the front yard? 
Uh, Travis Sheepley at Captain Jim Star on Twitter said, my most embarrassing thing I did for money, I worked at Walmart for three and a half years. That's funny. That's funny. It's a legit job though, but I, I get it. You know, it's not maybe what you wanted to be doing. It's a big corporation. Maybe you're bored out of your mind, but it's legit. It wasn't as bad as what Kaja Kex did for money. And I quote, rubbing my butt against a dirty car wearing white pants. Not remembering I was on my way out to dinner. I was confused by this. I didn't understand what that meant. I replied, what do you mean you rub your butt on? Who paid you to rub your butt on a car? Some creepy dude's like, hey, I'll give you 20 bucks if you rub your butt on a car. And she replied, I might be weird, but not that weird. But when a friend says I dare you, you just can't ignore it. You think I'm an idiot. Yes, I do. I think you're an idiot. I do not. I think it's cute to have done that. On a dare. Why not? Rub your booty on the thing. I don't know how you forget you're going to dinner shortly there afterwards. I'm always thinking about food, but it's your choice. But I asked a very important question in response. I said, how much? She replied, 30 bucks. And she replied, was not worth it. Um, I think it's worth 30, 30 dones is large, man. If it was like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, fuzz it. But $30, I'd rub, I'd, I'd buy white shorts for $20, rub them on the car and then pocket 10 bucks and then return the shorts and say, these shirt, shorts are dirty. Why would I buy filthy white shorts? Doesn't make any sense. Um, the last response was from Antisane, A-A-N-T-I-S-A-I-N, said, worst for a good cause, had to sell all my old Nintendos, GC, and Wii, game cartridges, and Wii with all games years ago, but it paid for my grand's meds for five months. See, that's sweet. And I realize it's interestingly like the storyline of Breaking Bad. Selling something you don't want to sell to pay for medicine and to take care of your family. It's like Breaking Bad without the dark intrigue. But it's a perfect time to bring on my guest. So let's do it. And my guest today on Last Week on Earth. I am very, very excited. Um... You all know this man as Hal from Malcolm in the Middle. You've seen him recently in the movies Contagion and Drive. He'll be upcoming in the movie Total Recall, coming out in the in the not-too-distant future, and uh, currently in John Carter, out on March 9th. But perhaps you know him best for the role that won him three consecutive Best Actor Emmys. Walter White, please welcome to the show Mr. Brian Cranston. Hello, sir. Thank you, Ben. I'm waiting for the ovation to die down before I launch into any kind of explanation of why I'm here. <laughs> I, I had thousands of extras hired. And we they, can put that in afterward. <laughs> totally. An uproarious, yeah, an uproarious response. Thing. We were at Toronto Film Festival, um, at the, the uh, premiere of Drive and uh, we we're on the big red carpet and there were hundreds and hundreds of young girls screaming out behind us as the actors are walking down the red carpet. And I'm right next to Ryan Gosling uh-huh. and I'm doing an interview and they're yelling, Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian. Must make him feel bad because they're yelling my name. <laughs> That's the way I took it anyway. You have an, you have, a, you have an ego that puts a B in front of screaming crowds. That's right. Exactly right. I put the B in Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Is it intimidating walking around with, with these, uh, young studs that are, make the, 
You must have female fans. Get out of town. Yeah, but they're like, you know, Betty White. (laughs) She's looking all right for still a cougar. Yeah. To to people my age. What is she, 90 years old? Yeah, whatever. I'll rock that world. (laughs) You got to. Sometimes you just got to let Betty White know. Exactly. What's up? What's what? Exactly. Now, before you had this, this exciting life of TV and movie stardom, uh, you came from humble origins. You grew up in Canoga Park. Yeah. Here in Los Angeles. I, I grew up in Canoga Park for a time too. Did you really? Yeah. I was, I'm from LA. That's right. You, we were talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Canoga Park High School, a very, you know, middle class, lower middle class uh, neighborhood and which I think is great because it, it teaches you that there are, humble uh beginnings to be had and and by having that kind of humble beginning you it's impossible to develop a sense of entitlement if something good happens in your life it's yeah. all gravy and you're going wow that was fantastic see I, I would almost be afraid it could be the opposite once you know how like humble and meager your beginnings could be once you taste something delicious you're like oh forget the old me well you it, don't get me wrong. You don't want to go back and go, <laughs> I want to throw it all away and work on my own car again, you know, and live in, you know, in, on someone's couch. Right. No, 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 no. You, but you, you appreciate uh, any successes that come your way. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So now what, what made you decide to pursue acting as career? Because it's not an easy life and it's not one with any kind of security until you get to a certain point. If you're that lucky. Boy, you know, I think if you, if you're thinking along those terms, you're, you're not an actor at heart. I mean, actors generally are the risk takers. Now, uh, if you go into the arts in any form, uh, you are taking a risk. And I think you have to know that because even from an early age, um, there are plenty of people wanting to be actors or writers or directors or um and i i was you know i came from a broken family and so when i was 16 i joined this group called the police explorers in los angeles it's a branch of the boy scouts and the the only reason i joined it was my brother was already involved your older brother Mm -hmm. kyle and his first two years that he's two years older he went to uh, Hawaii the first summer that he was in. The second summer, he went to Japan mm-hmm. and really on the cheap. I mean, a few hundred dollars for everything because we were guests uh, of the uh, police departments and things like that. And, and you're a kid. You're 16, 17, 18. You bring sleeping bags and you can sleep anywhere. It yeah. doesn't matter. You're there. You're traveling. And that's traveling more than police ever get to travel when you're really a cop. Yes, exactly. So uh, I joined when I was 16 because I wanted to travel. And sure enough, we went to Europe for five weeks uh, when I was 16 years old with a bunch of friends, a bunch of buddies. And it was an eye-opening experience, man. It was so great. And that's what made you decide you wanted to play characters the rest of your life is look at all these funny voices. No, it was like, well, I guess I'll do this. I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be a policeman because that's a really a manly job. Oh, okay. You so to you... carry a gun and it's right. like, and, but in order to, you can't just join the police explorers. You have to go through the LAPD Academy every Saturday for, I think, six weeks. And, um, I did really well. I graduated top in my class out of 111 16 year olds. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what I'm going to do. I guess I'll be a policeman because I'm good at it. Right. But the second year of college, I took elective courses and um, was stagecraft and acting. 
and I found out my true joy was in acting. Well, I should say that it was in the women who were involved <laughs> in acting were far prettier than the ones who were involved in police science and so, and abundance in acting classes. There were maybe 20 women to five or six guys and half of the guys were gay. Uh-huh. So if you're, you're like, it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel at the time. And this is the seventies. Sexy fish. Sexy fish. And you'd only maim them. You wouldn't want to kill them. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. You need to still get a little yeah. fun out of it. So the seventies were really, and you know, uh, the sixties was the sexual revolution yeah. decade. The seventies said, Time to celebrate. <laughs> they broke it open in the sixties. Now let's enjoy this. Right. No more issues. Let's no just more issues. Party. Let's just party. <laughs> so that's, that's what was happening then. So, so that's what I make sure that I understand then what you're saying is that you're only a true actor if you do it. You don't care about stability. You have to do it simply for the pussy. That's, that's the only exactly reason. right. There's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's only one, one thing that motivates a 19 year old boy. <laughs> to to place his his whole track of his life on on a, a certain path and that is and that is pussy. Yeah, absolutely. So now you started and I'd like to if I could quickly play a sound clip from your show Breaking Bad. And this is a right. a this is an audio clip of you uh of Walter White talking about doing medical research and uh well here you respond to it. Because I studied all the medical research. Oh. I tried Excedrin. It relieved my headaches better. Why else would anybody take it? There it is. How believable was that? That's, a, that's an Emmy-winning performance right that's there. something? Um, that, of course, was not you as Walter White. That was you in an Excedrin commercial. I was pushing drugs back then. From day one. Yeah, why not? You've been a drug pusher. This just seems like your, your, your destiny. Really. Yes, exactly. You know, it's like, um, I, I shot that when I was living in New York. Um, and commercials were a really uh, important part of, of my life. Um, when I was first starting out and I've been doing this for 33 years now. So, um, but they were really important because they would pay well. They would give, uh, they would help me make my insurance coverage and start the pension on its way. And also because it didn't take a lot of time. Uh, it would keep me available to be able to audition for theatrical roles and things. And you never felt like it was, it was gonna be, sometimes like, I dropped my commercial agent years ago because I didn't want to be in commercial. I felt like it would somehow affect people seeing me as, as like untainted by the corporate world or, I don't know. No, you didn't. I did. Well, also, but that's I still, why you dropped. Were you doing a lot of commercials? No, I also. That's not. why you dropped it. <laughs> that's true. You wanted to say, look, I don't, it's not really for me because if you had been doing a lot yeah. of commercials, you'd be going, yes, that's yes. True. That's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just figured I had to drop something because I do stand up comedy and I act and I write, and I didn't want to also have to be driving to the West Side every day for these auditions. Exactly. To, you to don't not want, be booking. Them. You don't want to be able to make money and get out of the <laughs> shithole apartment like this. <laughs> You want to be able with a because cup. this keeps you humble. That's right. One, this is what we love about you, Ben. Thank you very much. One, I hope and I hope and I pray yeah. that you never get successful because <laughs> then we hang on to the real Ben that we know and love. All right. Okay, so then you're this 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 big successful star now. Do you ever f- feel that back in the day? Obviously, your your only goal. I heard you say on Mark Maron's podcast too was just to be a, a working actor. Yeah. 
But did you ever feel like early on before you got your first big breaks, before you got any like real recurs or, or series regular parts, did you ever feel like you were underappreciated or like the industry wasn't necessarily intentionally holding you back? But I don't know, like I feel sometimes the industry has a lack of diligence or open-mindedness in finding talent. I feel like they like to chase heat, but they don't have a great ability to say, look at this guy's work and this little thing you'd never think of. Are you saying that like, the industry is a is a people too, like the Occupy thing. It's like a business is people. Yeah. No, it, it, I I think the the best advice I can give anyone as far as getting into this business, or whether you're a stand up comic or an actor or a writer or whatever, is the business and life don't owe you anything. Right. So get that out of your head. Right. It's not that there's there's any um. They're not conspiring to keep you down. And, <laughs> all right, everybody in agreement. We're, ben Glebe is not going to be able to achieve. You know, all in favor, aye. All, you know, it's like, all right, that's our goal. Uh, You're it, taking away all my excuses so far. Exactly right. And that's and that's the thing to do is to realize that it's a lot of hard work. I, and I think that's the the biggest misunderstanding that the civilian population, those people who uh, watch actors and writers and directors and appreciate their work but what they get a sense of is that they see the pictures in a magazine or uh they see the red carpet events and they wow how glamorous and mm-hmm. wow look at all that man and in in truth that's probably the least fun part of the job yeah well i can is very awkward it's it's not yeah it's you're you you have you get tired of talking about yourself mm-hmm it really is an awkward thing. You realize the importance of it because if you make a product like John Carter comes out this Friday and, and I'm, I'm very pleased with it. I think it's a, a great adventure film. You go on the red carpet and talk about it and they ask you to tell us about the story. And you tell about the story with as much enthusiasm as you can. And then you walk, I mean, a foot to your right, <laughs> right, and they say, "Well, tell me about John Carter." And you go, "Well, John Carter is about it." And you go another set. Well, tell me about what's this movie about? And it's like, "Well, John Carter is about it." And so you have to really have that energy to be able to promote it. But like any product, you need to promote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, people won't be aware of it. And and especially if you believe in it, and if it's if it's a fun product or or a valuable entity in that regard whether it's john carter or excedrin that's right either way doesn't matter oh there's less people bombarding you on red carpet tell us about the excedrin commercial (laughs) (laughs) well this character he's he suffers from headaches (laughs) migraines mind you um no so you're you're glad to do it and that particular uh spot was more actory than than a lot of things that you got a chance to do you just it was just me looking at the camera and talking about, you know, what saves me from my headaches or something. But I did, I'm in the years, I must have done a hundred commercials. A hundred commercials? Probably all told. I have got to get back in acting class. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, you, you find, it's not that you develop a sense of competition with anybody else. It's that find what you do well and do it well. And there, there may or may not be a, a market for any particular product that, that fits that. Well, now that we're, <laughs> well, hopefully there's a market, but assuming for a moment that there is some market somewhere. And since we're already talking about my so far lackluster acting <laughs> career, um, maybe you give me a piece of advice because 
I, you know, the, the few things I've been, ca- I've been cast in a lot of things that are unscripted, but things that are scripted that I've been cast in, the, the few and far between, I always crush it on set. Like, I feel, I don't know if, if you always felt that you had this limitless potential as an actor and if you knew that you could pull off a character like Walter White, but I feel like I, if I was given something or whatever I am, something to sink my teeth into, I excel at it. But something about the audition room is just t- is so different. To me, it's, it's entirely different than being on set. They, it seems like they try to crush your energy and it's this like very dark, kind of like unpleasant vibe. You walk in there. It's almost like you're inconveniencing them while trying to show them you I, can I think play you are role. thinking too much. You think so? Yeah, because the idea, and a lot of, a lot of actors go in with that point of view and it's only a crushing experience if that's the way you go in. Right. The truth is, is that you need to go into that room and own it. You need to go in and run that room. Everybody you- says that, but okay. I just had, I just had a, a producer session for a Fox pilot last week and I was so prepared and I'd coached on it and I was ready and I was in the zone. And during the second scene, it's the more emotional of the two scenes, even though it was a comedy and they're with all the producers and the phone rings in the room and it rings a couple times and the director of the show picked it up and hung it back up to try to make it less quite loud, but it, it went, went louder when he picks it up. Arr, all of a sudden. It didn't even phase me. I was still in the zone. Good. But it phased them. I could just clearly tell nobody was paying attention anymore. So should I have said, uh, sorry, that noise was, was distracting. Can we start over? Do you take it over to that degree? When you feel like they want to move on, they feel like they've seen it. Do you do that? Do you say, let's go again? I hate to burst your bubble, but if you were really in the zone and really doing fucking awesome, <laughs> the phone wouldn't have interrupted their interest in you. Right. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I hate to do that to you. It's a good thing but I have I'm a podcast. You, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it's like there, you could have killed mm-hmm. and let's say you did. It still doesn't mean you're going to get that job. So right. my whole point of this is that if an actor goes into an audition thinking that they're there to get a job, you are going to fail. Mm. It's not about that. It's about going in and doing what you do. And what you do well and present the character, present it and walk away. And when you do it like that, when you own the room, when you do it with confidence, confidence is contagious mm-hmm. and people will feel that if you exude confidence and you're good, mm-hmm. they're going to say, not only is he good, but I trust him to be able to deliver when we shoot this. Right. They'll just feel it. Right. But confidence in the room before you start i have great room i go in there everybody's laughing and it's a great yeah. warm vibe and yeah. I'm, they can tell i'm prepared right so but you know that sometimes you're taught in acting class conference walk in there and be like i want to move the chair here and do this and really show them that like you're taking over i feel like that's the one thing that you're taught but then in reality you don't want to go in and move, rearrange someone's furniture in there no, i would you would if you think that moving a chair in a certain position would help your mm-hmm. scene do it right Absolutely. Cause like, not it's to, not, you're not going to go to the producer and go, get up. You <laughs> right, get out. I right. don't want you here. Right. You sit down here. I want to look at the pretty lady when, you know, it's like, right. you can't. Right. You know, you're not there as an art director. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's a lot I want to cover. So I want to harp on my audition too much, but just another example in that same one. I had, or I didn't have the first line in the audition. And when you don't, they can just spring the beginning on you like anything. So I wanted yeah. to take control of at least that. Yeah. So I said to the reader, who's also the casting director, I'm like, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a sip of my beverage, relax for a moment into this thing I've planned, and then if you could start. 
And I said that, and I thought that'd be the greatest thing to take over the energy. And they looked, he looked kind of annoyed and like the room was like, what? They, 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 that's kind of my point. I feel like sometimes if you're not already established where they are, feel like they're lucky to be in the room with you, right. that they're put off by that kind of confidence. But everybody has been in the position where you are, where they may not know your work or know of you. And so you feel like you're behind the eight ball. Right. Uh, everybody's had to deal with that. The other thing to remember is that simple, sim- there's simply an, an, a numbers game. If they're hiring one guy for this role and they're seeing 50, mm-hmm. you could have killed, right. been the best person to come in and you may not get that job. Right. And that's why I say, you cannot focus on an end result with an audition. Mm-hmm. Your victory has to come in knowing the personal satisfaction of knowing that you did what you wanted to do in that room. Right, right. And you have to take that and own that and walk away. Right. And you cannot think and you cannot harbor any ill feelings or what the fuck do they want or what do they, oh, that phone rang or, this, or they didn't have a parking space like they said oh, we're going to have. Right. <laughs> because once that starts creeping into you, that starts to callous mm-hmm. your soul. Yeah. And pretty soon that's why you hear of these angry actors and people who just want fed up and pissed off and they're on a collision course. Right. So if you want to go through it in a healthy way and sustain, because this, this is a career long adventure. It's mm-hmm. not a, I'm going to give it a year. Right. And if I don't make it in a year, we hear that, well, you know, yeah, of course. what, what does crazy. that mean? That's crazy. I tell those people, I'm, I can save you a year. <laughs> if I could save you a year of time, your life, wouldn't that be good? Yeah. Yeah. How do I do it? Get back on the bus and go back to Iowa. <laughs> right. And find that girl that you were crazy about. Marry her, have kids and be an Tell her she sale. is hot enough now. Yes. <laughs> I've been out to LA. You are now hot enough. <laughs> It's all uglies out there. I came back for you, baby. (laughs) So, okay. So then you obviously had already had a, a, a very successful career as a working actor. You had, you know, guest stars on many, many shows, recurring role on Seinfeld. Then you get the role of Hal and Malcolm in the middle. And you are on this show for how many seasons? Seven. And was that, how satisfying was that to finally get a series regular role on a hit show like that? How did that shift your, I don't know, your thoughts about yourself well, or your career. It didn't shift anything about my thoughts of myself or my career. It shifted my career mm-hmm. because uh, it was a hit. Mm-hmm. The series that I had done prior to that, the several series that I had done, mm-hmm. which were not hits, right. it doesn't change your career. Right. It gives you a little money. It starts feeding your pension. It makes you qualified for your, you know, but the, uh, and you, and you can hopefully develop fans. People, writers, casting directors, directors who go, you know, I like him. I want, next thing I am doing, I want to bring him in on that. Mm, Even right. though what we just did didn't work out, this will be great and whatever. Right. How did your actual audience fans react to the transition then from, from Malcolm in the Middle to Breaking Bad, which is quite a departure? I don't know. Have you, have you, have you had correspondence from them? Have you had a sense that a lot of them followed you to the next project or do you think it's a pretty much entirely different fan base no i get a lot i mean it's not a there's a it's basically a one way i get letters and things like that but i can't i can only respond in general terms 
you know, when I had a website, I still do, but, um, you know, on, on Twitter or, or Facebook or something, mm-hmm. it, you respond in general terms about being thankful for the opportunity, which I truly am, um, to have two really well written successful series is, is rare to have one. Yeah. Is rare. Totally rare. So, to um, book a commercial is rare. I'm trying to, to book this, an Excedrin commercial. <laughs> rare. So, okay, so the part of Walter White comes along, and it's an incredible part. It leads to three Emmys for you. What what have you learned about acting playing this role, would you say? And what? I don't know. I mean, that's probably so incremental because it, it, it's not it's, – it's like when you have a child and you're with that child every day, you don't see the – the, you can once in a while you'll see the subtle changes, but because you see that child every day, mm-hmm. you don't see the large changes. But if you have a friend who lives back east and comes out once a year, then goes, "Oh man, has she changed?" Right, because they can truly see the differences. Right, and and so that's the same thing with acting is that you're going along and you're living with yourself, and your work is changing and maturing and going into different areas, and you're attempting new things and. And so you, it's hard to then be objective about your own process and your own work. Right. Others have probably a better viewpoint than you do of yourself. But I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, kind of like what I was asking earlier is to be able to portray a character that's so challenging that it ends up being, you know, recognized as the best performance and most interesting character of the last few years do you need to have always known, like when you get the role, did you know that you had the ability to, they didn't even know where the character was going yet. So do you feel like you, you had to have limitless confidence in yourself to know you can take him anywhere? Or what do you think it is that, I don't know, that was there ever certain scenes or certain things you were asked to do that were just very challenging? You had to, you, you had a hard time pulling off or you had to wrap your head around for quite well, a while. I think like a, Sometimes acting is like child's play and you watch a child play and they don't judge themselves when they're playing house or playing doctor or whatever they're playing. They're completely devoted to it and they're not saying, Oh, I didn't do that well. Let me, let me come back in and I'll do that again. <laughs> you know, but the we, phone rang. Yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> we as adults allow those external things to influence how we are behaving. Mm-hmm. children don't and and sometimes it's best for actors to just simplify things and get back to that childhood sensibility and and just dive in mm-hmm. don't think about it just dive in when i read the pilot for breaking bad i i knew it was exceptional uh the best hour-long pilot i had ever read and uh i had an in i had a, a lucky break because i had worked with vince gilligan a 10 years earlier on, on an episode of the X-Files and he remembered me from that. So what you were saying is true. You come in, you do your job as best as you can and you never know what's going to happen. Well, because I had this relationship with Vince 10 years earlier mm-hmm. and we didn't continue that relationship. Right. We, he just felt that that character that he wrote for X-Files had similarities that he shared with Walter White. And that he knew Walter White was going to devolve into this menace. Mm -hmm. And he still felt that the audience needed to 
uphold some sympathies for him. And so the character that he wrote for X-Files had that same kind of sensibility. And, and, and so he, he was my champion to get this role from the very beginning. And without him, I don't think I'd be sitting here now. I mean, I really don't. I, I think it was, I certainly wouldn't have been on that podium, but I do rem, I do remember thinking, wow, this is such a dynamic character and where he's going to take it that who, if this somehow, if Breaking Bad, somehow becomes a television series past the pilot mm-hmm. and actually stays on the air for any length of time. If it could stay on for five years, whoever gets the role of Walter White, it's going to change their life. But you weren't sitting there saying, please, God, let me get this role. No. Really? You're like, you're able to be that zen about it, that you're that... I want, I wanted it. Right. And you want to go after it. But what's great about well-written material is that if the hardest work actors have ever had to do is on poorly written material, mm-hmm. where you, you're left with nothing. The guideposts are, are vague right. and, and you're desperate to, to latch onto something that makes sense and, and to give your character some sort of arc that has meaning and. Right. Uh, but the easiest, we've ever had and it's not to say that acting is easy but the easiest work for an actor to prepare for a role is on well-written material Mm -hmm. where you just sink in it feels like you're just dropping into this guy and oh my i know this guy i know i know where he goes i know how he thinks and feels i would wake up in the morning while i before my meeting with vince after reading the script and i had i had copious notes Mm mm-hmm I would dream about the character involuntarily. It would just come to me. Would because you dream the, in character? No. Okay. No, I was still kind of outside of it. Right. Because it takes a while for that character to really seep into your soul. Mm-hmm. And so as you're dancing around with it, but you're getting a sense of who he is. And the closer you get to bringing him in, the more idiosyncrasies come to you. Uh, the way he approaches uh, his his life, and so by the time I had my meeting with Vince, I knew how how much he should weigh. I knew he should mm-hmm. be kind of pasty white. I knew we should take the color out of my hair. What I wanted to do was to make him invisible mm-hmm. to society and to himself. He's a forgotten man. He doesn't care anymore. He went to seed. He for, he he's a little you know he's he's pasty and he has no color to his skin um he wears the same clothes because he doesn't care his hair always needed a trim of some sort sure he i grew that mustache and i knew i wanted it to look impotent yeah wimpy a little mustache right i wanted i wanted people to look at that mustache and go why bother (laughs) either grow a mustache or shave it what are you right what are you doing you know right and so i wanted that kind of feeling and then as he changes we see him lose weight we see him gain confidence we see his ego start to come in and in these uh, seasons now we start to see that really come to play if i started cooking meth i'd be booking more roles that is the key the confidence would just shoot through the roof because you wouldn't need the money money's true. in the bank you that's also go. true that's actually partially why i started this podcast was I was just tired of, of putting so much weight into every audition. I wanted to create something that was my baby that I could focus my energies into. And then each opportunity that came by is just a bonus and I can put my, my, my heart and soul into it. Yeah. But if it doesn't pan out, 
I still have something going that's important yeah, to me. That's really important. It's really important because it, I would say that for anyone in the arts is that do not put all the, all your eggs into that basket. You know, don't think that every single audition is vitally important. Mm -hmm. So I started writing. I started, um, and I directed an independent film. And when I started writing, it put my frustrated creative energy mm -hmm. into something very valuable. To yeah. Me. And even if it just stayed as an exercise, even if that wasn't going to go to the next step and actually develop it, right? It was an exercise that I needed to vent. Uh, need an outlet. An outlet. Right. And so I would really encourage all actors to, to look into writing, even if you've never felt or thought about that before. Directors take acting classes. Right. It's important because yeah. you have to know when you're giving a, an actor direction, you have to know what that feels like to an actor, of how course. they process that. Sure. So you're, you could always be working and being in a creative environment and cross over. Right. With writing, directing, acting. That brings up two questions because, um, firstly, I also heard you say on Mark Marin's podcast that you're always writing. Even now, still, you write a lot. I do. So, firstly, how do you find the time with how busy you are promoting movies and promoting Breaking Bad and shooting, which is essentially a movie every two weeks? How do you find the time to still write and then still balance a family life and a marriage and raising your daughter and all these things? Well, because I'm a hack, actually. That's, you know. <laughs> I didn't, say I, was a, on paper. didn't say I was a good writer. <laughs> um, no, I find it very satisfying. There's something, if I may use that term, omnipotent about it. At the time you're creating a story, you are godlike. Mm -hmm. And without getting into the ego of that, it's just the awesome awareness of that. Like, I can have this character say anything. Mm -hmm. I can have this other character do anything. It's like, <laughs> oh. and with that comes responsibility sure. and power, but responsibility like, okay. And you do sort of feel like they're your family and friends and you have to guide them and you start, even if it's within yourself and only within yourself, because there's something to that too, that when you're creating a story, I'm the only person in the world that knows what I'm up to at that point. Right. There's something awesome about that, right? Well, that's like, true with any activity. Wow. Masturbation, anything. No, there are other people because you can You're hear, the only one who knows. They can you... hear your cries through the door. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point, especially the thin walls of my Mommy. apartment building. <laughs> Mommy. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've shouted that uh -huh. in ever. Um, but, you know, whatever way you want to do it, I understand. But here's – so – and then – okay. So then – I mean, that's something I, I, I've also never really understood too, because to me, writing is so powerful and it's the person who creates this fantastical world that gets to then live on in the vision of the director and the actors and the editors. But why, why do they give, I never understood why they give in films a, a possessory credit, a film by to the director when he wants it, when he didn't even create the world. He didn't write the dialogue. Don't you feel like that should be a credit given to the writer, or at least if you're a writer director? Well, um, it, it's partly political that the DGA has, has a very strong position and Direct they, field, yeah. yeah, and they got into that, um, uh, early and that possessory sort of thing. Um, the other thing is partly pragmatic because it's the director's vision that creates the image of what that is. And in films, it is true. It's, 
it's more important to viscerally and visually tell a story Mm -hmm. usually than it is to tell it orally in film Mm -hmm. on stage. It's not on stage. It's a writer's medium in that sense. Uh, it's an actor's medium because once you get on stage, you, you rehearsals, you know, are, uh, um, a thing of the past and you do whatever it is you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why writers have really taken over and have taken control of television. Mm-hmm. It is truly the writer's medium. And they'll be the, the showrunner usually too. Yeah. Uh, the power in television is in, in the writer's hands. There are very few directors in television that have as much power. Jimmy Burroughs is one mm-hmm. and rightfully so he's, he's brilliant. And, um, but there are very few directors in television who have that kind of power and control. Right. So what made you want to start directing? You directed a, a, a handful of episodes of Malcolm in the middle and of breaking bad. You just directed an episode of modern family too, right? Yeah. What made you want to then go into that spot? It, what does that fulfill for you that acting does and why, where that interest come from? It's not so much that I'm looking for something that I'm missing. Um, I've always been a very curious person. So I've always looked at different situations and go, I wonder what it would be like. And I think that's part of the actor's palette is that you have to have a insatiable curiosity. Mm. Uh, what would that life be like if I was, you know, and you start to dig into a character uh, and, and, you know, you scratch the surface when you first read it and then you scratch it deeper and deeper and deeper and you get more invested in that character and that project and, uh, and you get fully involved. Um, and directing was, uh, it evolved from, uh, being around and on sets for so long and, and wondering, I wonder why they're doing that. And either good or bad, mm-hmm. good directors are going, God, that's brilliant. Why he's doing that or why she's making that move or putting that camera there. And if you start to think in those terms, like, where would I put the camera to tell this story? Where would I, what would I? And then you have a couple experiences where, where you're working with less than creative geniuses <laughs> and you go, boy, this guy really doesn't have a clue what he's doing or. He doesn't have a vision here. Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking in those terms, you're, you're in line to want to direct because you're already thinking, what would I do if I were in that position? And if you say that enough, and then if you're in a position where you, where you can, you know, exert yourself, right. um, then do it. And I, I, it first came about when I wrote a, a, a feature film script for my wife as a birthday present and handed it to her and then last chance right yeah this movie called last chance which is a very linear simple um romantic drama and it's around and we made it on the cheap i mean really cheap but on 35 millimeter at the time it's like 12 years ago so a lot of money went to the expenses of buying film and processing film and telecine film and you know so um now you could make a movie like that a lot cheaper and a lot easier um and but it was great it was a great experience and i just decided well i might as well direct it you know because i really know this story really well right so i did and because of that uh experience that i put myself in i was then able to direct malcolm in the middles and because of that i directed a pilot for comedy central and another comedy for a- abc and then it spawned other things and now 
I can, I can't do anything and, but I, there are things that I want to do. So when the opportunity for, uh, modern family came up, a show I think is brilliant mm-hmm. and funny. And so I thought, yeah, I'd love to do that. But when you start out directing a lot of your own things, maybe that's part of some of the issues I, I face, I guess, because I, I directed a lot of things I did early. I had my own television show for a while and I directed it as well as performed in it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe it, I got so used to being able to, create all aspects of the vision and make decisions on everything that then all of a sudden you're just <clears throat> you're just walking into a room to audition or you just have to do have to you're, you're hired as an actor and you have all these ideas of how you can do something better it's hard sometimes to shut off that voice and just play your role just you know yeah. do you ever have that experience where even when you're not directing a project then or, or an episode after you just directed an episode of breaking bad are you ever like oh if i was directing right now i would not have this issue Oh, sometimes, to- yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I'm, you'll hear it from me more than anyone else. I, I, I think that I'm, I've had so many lucky breaks, um, that I've been able to capitalize on and, and, uh, I have a, a career that I've always wanted. And, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's a life without frustration. And that is allowed. Artistic fr- frustration is always allowed and should be allowed mm-hmm. on any, on any level, on any set, um, anywhere. Yeah. If your uh, life's you too good, just you, deal with that. Yeah. If your life's too good, you might start to lose connection to what the deeper emotions a lot of your roles are going to require of you. Maybe if you're I living this, I don't believe life. that. Really? I no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that, um, you have to suffer in order to be good. You don't think you've had to at some point in your life to have had to, to, to have experienced some, some despair or some I think, deep sadness to know how to play that. I, I think that's inevitable with every person. Right. Uh, that there are very, very few, um, people who can go through life, uh, without experiencing loss or discomfort or hunger or, or desire or any of those extreme emotions. Mm-hmm. So you just, I mean, that's part of the actor's palette is that you have experience as one go-to place. Go, you know, dig down into your experiences right. to pull out what a character would need. If you don't have the experience, if you're too young or if it's like, um, uh, a murder, a serial murderer, right? I'm going to go murder some people in order to <laughs> really understand this character. But you get, then you have to pull out your imagination mm-hmm. and you have to pull out what where did this guy come from? How did he get to be where he is? So did you ever, did you ever cook actual meth to prepare for the role or did you just, it was all imagination and whatever props they had in front of you? Well, it's funny you should mention that. I brought you a little sample of did my you really? own product. Oh God, I would um, love that. No, just for, I, uh, for actor research purposes. Actor research purposes. I can actually bring you some. We should have, we should have brought some for you. Oh, some actual breaking bad blue meth? Actually breaking bad blue meth. Oh my God. We'll, we'll get, we'll bring it to you. Really? Yeah, I would love it. It tastes remarkably like cotton candy flavored rock candy. Is that right? Mm hmm. And so then it probably smells like that too, right? Yes, it does. So are you ever in the scene that's supposed to be this like dangerous, deadly drug and you smell bubble gum in the background? You yeah. smell cotton candy? Yeah, exactly. And Does we eat it. Take you out of the moment a little bit? No. Never at all. No, I turn on, turn off. You literally just pull up, you're holding in, in, in little forceps this delicious smelling candy and yeah. you're like, 
Let's go out there and meet Tuco. That's right. Exactly right. Oh my God. It, and, and, you know, on, on that 13th hour, 14th hour of the day when you're in the Tyvek suit that doesn't breathe and right. you're sweating underneath and you're tired and you need a little energy and you're waiting for something to fix itself before you start the next take. And we'll be munching on the blue meth. We'll be eating the blue meth, the, the crew and everybody. It's like popping down. Nice. And it's one of those flavors where you, you pop it in, you go, Oh, that's kind of weird, but okay. And then you get used to it and then you start to crave it. It's like, you're like, where is it? Come on, give me a handful. Come on. Give me, I need a handful. I will pay any amount yeah. of money for this. That's right. It's not pure enough. I need the cotton candy, rock candy. Do you cook your own rock candy? That's, that's the right. question. Well, no, I mean, uh, when we were uh, doing the pilot, we were taught by, um, DEA chemists how to cook crystal meth. Wow. Aaron Paul and I were. Did we you actually through. cook it for real or, or was it? No, no. Substitute? No, we can't, we can't do that because it's toxic. Oh, so right. you're, you're, you're creating. Yeah, but you could have a little oxygen we, mask we on. We did have those on. Right. No, but he, uh, but they went through step by step of how to make pure crystal meth wow. from the standpoint of what Walter White would want to be involved in. Right, you know, right. Not using any crappy ingredients and things like that. Yeah. So I promise we're going to get to stories from the world in a few minutes, but I'm just very interested in, in, in the process with which you bring this character to life. So tell me a little bit about when you get each script for Breaking Bad, how do you break it down? How much, how much prep do you do on the paper? Are you, are you figuring out your, your character's thoughts at each beat or is it all just internalized and then you just live it out organically on the set? More of the latter because when you do a series and if you're well into the series as we are, you, you, you don't have to continue to put a conscious thought on your character mm -hmm. because by now the character is inside of me. You've created the guy, right? Yeah. And he's, he lives in there. Um, he doesn't pay rent, but he lives in there. But um, <laughs> have you ever dreamed as him now that now oh, that yeah, it's five yeah. years later? Yeah. You, you think, really? of, oh yeah, because you start thinking of, of the points of view that he would have and, and the other thing is, is that as, as Walter White, you know, descends into hell, um, we, we are using more of not only the physical danger of the show and where he's put himself and his family, but his emotional danger. He's, he's expressing himself through his ego and hubris. And, um, and those are very dangerous things. And one that a, a mature adult would, would squash and mm -hmm. not, you know, want to use. But we have to allow Walter White to let that come out, the ugliness of, right. of someone deep inside. And, and that's going to be continuing as the show goes on. So has this character then, you've had to embody a person and, and bring as realistically to life as possible a guy who's become very dark and morally ambiguous and morally, not even ambiguous a lot of the time, like not, morally bad. Yeah. Um, he's broken bad. Is that the way you conjugate broken the past yeah. tense? He broke bad. He broke bad. Broken either way. Um, has the character as playing this role altered your morality at all? Has it altered the way you see the world, see the way you see good and good and evil? I don't know if it's altered it. It's, it's, it's maybe illuminated certain things that are not exactly the way I think it would be. And if, you know, um, I think it's, you know, it, it, it was fortunate that the, the the show came about at a time when there's great debate about healthcare. Mm. There's great debate about um, where we set our priorities and the lack of 
focus on how important teaching is mm-hmm. and that here's a man who has a special needs son and needs special uh, physical therapy for that. And yet on his teacher's salary, he can't afford to just do that. So he has to have a second job. And, uh, I, I think, I think it's wrong that basic health care is, is reserved for the rich. It shouldn't be a privilege. I think it should be a right. Right. But as long as there's profit and tremendous profit to be made in health care, I don't think we'll, we'll see any, uh, extreme changes. The, the changes that the president put in recently mm-hmm. about, about the, um, healthcare insurance coverage, that's pretty monumental. Yeah, it's huge. And, uh, you can call it socialized medicine if you want. You can call it whatever you want. The bottom line is that if it, if it raises the amount of children, indigent children and families that are, are not able to get health care and now can, it's mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. And then the, the debate gets so marginalized all the time by these fringe issues that are not even what it's about. Like the big thing that's dominating still now for the second or third week in a row is the, the fight that the Republicans are picking with Obama and the Democrats over the fact that Obama says that religious institutions should have to, um, provide healthcare coverage for their, for employees who might not be of their religion that a lot, that that covers contraceptives and birth control, right? And it's become this huge firestorm, right? Um, has our politics been hijacked in your estimation? Do you think? I mean, how how do we allow such clearly good versus bad, wrong versus right issues get taken to a point of the minutia of it, and we lose sight of the forest? Well, it, it it's a it's a debate that you know. I mean, I I've I first believe very strongly in the separation of church and state. Uh, it doesn't appear totally. that the right-wing uh, faction of the Republican Party believes that anymore. Mm. In fact, they want to abolish that. They want to infuse religion strongly and structurally, mm-hmm. systemically yeah. in politics. And I'm just against that. Yes, I don't think that any you you can be a good administrator, but the puritanical nature of this country is showing its face mm-hmm. that if you don't have a strong religious background, ooh, it's going to be difficult for you to yeah. to get elected. I think it should be complete I I an agnostic, an atheist. Why wouldn't an atheist be a good candidate? You're just looking at the facts. Too much logic going on there. I don't, I don't understand why it, yeah. it's important. I mean, it's gotten to a point where Santorum literally is running on saying, I do not believe in an absolute separation of church and state. Yeah. He literally is saying, John F. Kennedy makes me want to throw up when he yeah. says we need to separate church and state. Well, I mean, it goes back to, to uh, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, this is a, this is a debate that's right. been going on since the birth of our country. And uh, I believe it's smart. And the reason that there was, uh, that, People emigrated to the, to this new land was because there was so much religious persecution anyway mm-hmm. that you were not allowed to express yourself religiously. So that was, they, they were saying, so because of that, from all of Europe and everything, we want to set up a government 
that you don't have to worry. The government's not going to come in and say, you need to be this way. Right. We're going to separate the church, whatever church it is that you believe mm-hmm. in, from the state, from the operation of the state. That makes sense. And now they want to merge it back in, saying that, well, this is a Christian country. This is founded on Christian principles. This is mm-hmm. should be Christian, should be. And it's like, who are you? Right. This was a Native American country. Right. You know, if anything, they were closer to Buddhism than Christianity. Yeah, we need to visit a couple of casinos and ask them what exactly. the true America is about. <laughs> but on that issue, though, actually, and, and, you know, I think just the general, in general, the polarization that we've allowed to happen and largely due to people like Rush Limbaugh that have polarized us. And I have some clips I'll play in a minute from a story that happened this week with mm-hmm. Rush Limbaugh. But, um, the, the actual, crux of the debates is getting lost in all this noise and all this just left attacking right and right attacking left but the right the republicans actually made a point gingrich actually illuminated in a way that actually made me start to see the contraception issue a little bit differently this week because they're you know sometimes they're going to be right on the right and sometimes the left's not going to be right on this issue i I actually realized their issue there is about separation of church and state because they're saying this is the first time in history that an administration is mandating that religious organizations m- allow their employees to be covered with birth control, which they find unconscionable. They find it completely morally reprehensible to, I disagree, I like to have sex and don't want a bunch of babies running around, but their religion dictates that, that they can't do that. I think they should be allowed to say, no, our health care plans, if you work for us, should not cover birth control and you don't have to work there. We have still have that freedom too, but that's an interesting kind of flip side of it. Um, if it stops, I think it has to be the law of the land. If the right of a woman to choose, um, is the law of the land, then that should be the law of the land when it comes to setting policy with in regards to healthcare and that sort of thing. And if, if contraception, which I, th- I totally believe in, right. <laughs> um, is the law of the land, which it is, then mm-hmm. that should be mandated. I think it should be. I don't think that a person who is, um, owns a, a company or let's say there, you have a, a, a company that, uh, uh has been bought out mm-hmm. and the new owner is the, the guy who, is very right-wing religious. Right. And he says, from now on, women who work for this corporation can no longer have contraception and no longer have medical care or prenatal care, like they're debating, you know, uh, the, the, the fine work that, um, that, uh, they do, you know, for, for women in, in all that regard. Um, should they be allowed to then just come in and say, because I don't personally believe in it, I'm not going to supply that for, for, the millions of people who may work for the corporation. Well, I agree with you in that case, but I think the only difference they're saying not, not if some religious zealot comes into a company, but they're saying if it's a religious organization, if you're working for St. Mary's hospital and they're believe in, and it's known what a Catholic belief is with regards to those things, you don't have to take a job working for St. Mary's hospital, but they shouldn't be mandated to say, obviously we have to provide health coverage for our employees, but should we have to provide coverage that allows for, Using sex for, pro- for so, not just for procreation. So when it was Bill's hospital, right, <laughs> and you you work for them, the seven hundred or three thousand people who work for Bill's hospital, right, now becomes Saint Mary's hospital. Good point. You have to quit. Good point. Is what you're saying. Good point. So 
you know, so it's, there's gray area. It's not, it's not as black and as white as you think. You right. Know? And I, I think, I think we need to just come into the 21st century here. I, I mean, I, that's my beef with the Catholic Church is that if they would realize and embrace the, the fact that they have a tremendous influence over a huge section of the world's population and they need to take, to to realize that contraception is not against God's will. Right. Ninety five percent of Catholics use have used birth control in their lives. Yeah. It's like, well, right. no. If they have, then they're not true Catholics, according to the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. I I definitely agree with you that once a religion or any institution allows hypocrisies in, you lose your ability to argue. Well, look at look at um, uh, was it Ted Kennedy who wanted to file for annulment after. After 25, 30 years of marriage and right. four children, it's like, oh yeah, we can give you an annulment, you know? Right. It's like, Wait, what? Right, right. And he wanted the Catholic Church to, to right, to, yeah, to not blessing. count the marriage, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Um, but then, you know, speaking of being in the 21st century, Rush Limbaugh this week proved he is not. Um, here's a clip of him attacking this, just to set the, uh, the, uh, ground for this, this woman, Ms. Fluke, she, uh, Sandra Fluke, I believe, she testified in front of a non-binding, just a just a, a hearing before Congress that Nancy Pelosi set up, right. because the actual official hearing had no women testify. All old, white-haired <laughs> white men. We should not let these no. let the women get knocked up. <laughs> so she created this one where, where this woman could have her voice heard, and she's a Georgetown student. And she's, she's a law student, and she just spoke about not about anything about we need free birth control so we can have sex. She literally is saying there are health issues involved with it. Birth control can affect a woman's health, it, and certain women, when they're not given access to it, will develop cysts and all kinds of health issues. And here was Rush Limbaugh's response to that. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke? Susan. Who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex. What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? Makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. She's having so much sex she can't afford the contraception. She wants you and me and the taxpayers to pay her to have sex. Yeah. You know, the only thing I could say, I agree with Rush on one sense, is that I'd like to be paid to have sex, too. <laughs> I think that would be a very powerful position to be in. But um, You could probably demand quite a hefty fee at this point. Now, maybe. Think about know. it. If the Kardashians are launching careers, you're already at the top. Mm-hmm. Now you release a sex tape? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's going to be the biggest mm-hmm. selling sex tape in the world. Exactly. Cranston crams it in live. That's right. Live on the internet. Betty White and Brian Cranston doing the nasty. <laughs> Betty White's hot, man. Hottest 90 plus on the planet. <laughs> She's a great gal. I like her a lot. Yeah. Um, you would think but elderly, I don't want to huh? have sex with her. You don't want to have sex no, with her? No, no. Really? Well, let me think about it. No. What about like sweet, slow sex? No. Everything's slow with Betty White. <laughs> That's a good point. When you're 90, it's like, Except her comedic timing. Fast? still sharp. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Her comedic timing. We'll get back in, in a moment. We're going to ping pong strangely, get back to Rush Limbaugh because I have another clip that he took it to a whole other level. But now that we're just talking about Betty White and comedic timing, I have a question for you about, about comedic acting versus dramatic acting. How do you see, what is the difference in your eyes? Obviously, one timing. makes you laugh, one doesn't, oh, but it's timing, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> you cut me off with the timing. Um, but 
you know how oftentimes you you'll hear a director say or you hear producers say you never play to a joke, but that's not true, right? I mean, obviously you're playing to jokes. Well, it depends on the style, the style of uh, of the comedy, right? And that's that's what makes comedy harder to uh, perform well than drama. Drama allows uh, leeway to for pauses and interpretation and a different take. You, you you can go a number of different ways. Right. Comedy is pretty pretty straightforward. You either hit it or you don't. Right. And uh, but there's different forms of comedy, as you know. So it's it's um. You don't play to the joke if you're playing it real. If the character is not in on the joke, you're just playing it straight and let the power of the circumstance uh, take over. Right. And let the audience laugh. And by and large, if if the actor or character is laughing, then we are not laughing as an audience. True. Yet in a sitcom, though, there are actual technical techniques you have to employ or, or or that would work much better on certain lines so it's not like you're just being in the moment and letting the line work because there, there's times where you have to like read through a list real quick and then pause for your last bit or yeah. you're gonna have to do motion stillness or a quick turn or a head you know what i mean there, there are things to there do. are things you and you kind of mine that you're like put on your miner's helmet and you go look for those moments because you can also stretch out a laugh where and put a laugh where none was thought was going to be there sure on a on a look or a response you know you can get two laughs as opposed to the one sure if you come in too fast you might kill the laugh you might i mean it's it's so delicate it's like a souffle so how do you reconcile that with being in the moment and listening and adjusting to the other actor when you know though you have this list coming up that you're going to do quickly and then pause for your last line how do you combine because that it's, with because being in the it's moment? never it's never pure art and it's never pure spontaneity. <laughs> it, it's, it's measured and it's rehearsed. Mm-hmm. And there, and no matter what you're doing, if you're on stage or if you're, uh, doing stand up or if you're doing a movie, it's, it's all about rehearsing those beats to see what makes the most sense instinctively to you and to the creative team and what you're going to finally perform. And that's even true in drama. It's never pure art. You're sitting there and you're. As I pictured Marlon Brando being just emoting in this room and with an earpiece and, and, and ca- someone's <laughs> telling him exactly what to say, which is true. Yeah. He, he was not good at memorizing lines. Huh? Yeah. And he, and he didn't want to after a while. So he had an right. earpiece and they would feed him the lines. And is that legit in your eyes as long as the final project? Yes. It is. Product is. Yeah. Because doesn't matter. Because it's a magic act. Right. Um, whatever any device or gimmick or someone uses, the the bottom line is did it work mm. if it works then it's fine mm, interesting yeah so you think if you have to cry in a scene doesn't matter if you're really crying or if they blow assaults in your eyes and tears come out 20 seconds later when when they're rolling tape mm-hmm. it's all the same it, again it's too it's too specific to say it. yes that's good if it works right and the 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 statement if it works is subjective we could be sitting next to each other and watching a movie and you could be weeping like a baby. And I'm going, what are you kidding? Really? I don't, that works for you. That's, I, I cry easily. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah. Right. And I'd want you to hold me. <laughs> I'm people don't know. I'm, I'm almost holding you right now. Yeah, I know. I feel it. You feel it. I'm emotionally I cuddling I you. I feel it. Good. It feels warm. It does. And comforting. Good. Now does it feel a little weird now? It's a little, well, you dropped your voice. Yeah, it's getting a little strange, yeah, huh? baby. Yeah. Put on a little there. Uh, Barry White. Yeah. <laughs> I am Antonio Banderas. Banderas. 
Comedic acting is not recognized by the Academy, either in film or, or television, to the same degree as dramatic acting. Far, far less, if, if it's harder to, to pull off. It is. Um, I think I think ultimately people have a prejudice in favor of drama um, because, because I think they value something heartfelt more than lighthearted mm. right something just makes you laugh it's extremely valuable mm -hmm. but i don't think it's revered as much as something that makes you cry maybe it also just doesn't stay with you as long maybe yeah. it doesn't you know it doesn't no. hit you at, at those same levels people feel like wow i was truly moved by a performance yeah. as opposed to oh i laughed a lot laughed but my ass off right is a great thing right but when you're talking about what moved you or what scared you mm -hmm. or made you feel you know uh, you know susceptible to to your tapping into your own emotions you know then then you've reached something deep yeah something that made me feel susceptible this last week to all kinds of emotions was the follow-up clip from Rush Limbaugh, who um, took that statement he already made, which was pretty absurd and offensive and, and, and horrible, to an even further level the next day. I didn't hear this. One. Oh, this one's even better. And it somehow this missed most of the media attention. Here it is. So Ms. Fluke and the rest of you feminazis, here's the deal. If we are going to pay for your contraceptives and thus pay for you to have sex, we want something for it. And I'll tell you what it is. We want you to post the videos online so we can all watch. Wow. He is, uh, I, first of all, I can't imagine any living soul <laughs> wanting to have sex with Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> At that least not be, under. That would be like, all right, you really want to get into hell? How badly do you want to get into hell? <laughs> you have to have sex with Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> That's got to be the worst image imaginable. Yeah, he's the leader, really, de facto leader of the Republican Party. He's become, what, what was he in that clip? He's like a, he's like a perverted blackmailer. He's like, you want to have birth control? Here's what you're going to do. Yeah, he said, meet me in the corner and do it in front of me. What, let's break it down what he actually said there. And this is the first time I heard it, but yeah. he says, okay, okay, I, ca I caught a little heat, all you feminazis. You know, he says, uh, um, and if that's what you think, then what you need to do is to make a movie clip of that. And so we can all see it. And so what he didn't say, but is underlying it, so I can masturbate to the sight of these women who I'm paying to have sex with, which I do anyway. <laughs> that is an excellent Rush Limbaugh impersonation. That is very good. He is so off his rocker. Yeah. It's hilarious. But for those, it, it, it just let him, let him go. This is one of those times where you go, I would not only not try to, to suppress his voice, I would feed him. Yeah, now. true. He's a madman going insane, and he's representing a faction of the Republican Party that if you're in the Republican Party, you must be going, oh, please, Rush, shut up, shut up, please, Rush, <laughs> stop it. And all the people who are on the fence, 
maybe a little more socially conservative, maybe more fiscally conservative, not quite, I'm not really thinking about any one particular, this might say, okay, I, I just can't go that crazy. That's, right. the, that's the crazy train. Sometimes we squelch their craziness too early and don't yeah. let them, you gotta give people enough rope to hang themselves let with. Let him go, let Rush right. go, he will certainly implode his, you know, his large frame. Yeah, yeah. he said that, he he then sort of apologized a couple of days later, and he said, um, in an attempt to be humorous, <laughs> I um, used words that were misconstrued and created a national stir. Yeah. My impression is not as good as yours, but the yeah. point remains. Um, That's always easy for someone like that to fall back on. It was a joke, people. It was joking. Come on. When Which Ted Kennedy ran his ran his, his girlfriend off the bridge, I was kidding. It was a joke. We were playing Marco Polo. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty insane. Um, it actually is a pretty. Int- I mean, okay. Do you think, Brian, there's inherent good and evil in the world? After exploring this world of Walter White for so many years and seeing people that are so vitriolic out in the public square saying horrible things, and also this week, you know, we'll talk in a second about how the the drums of war seem to be building more and more towards attacking Iran, either us or Israel. Do you think there's inherent good and evil in the world, or is everybody from their perspective doing the right thing? I don't. I mean, I think what happens is that is that certain influences take people into an area that they lose themselves you can start i think i think i believe in in the system of government where people want to get involved because they actually feel they can contribute and do some good then they get caught up in the cog of the machine and you realize oh in order for me to get to the place where i can actually do some good i need to play ball with this guy over here who's got a bridge that i need to support that gets it gets kind of muddy and weird but i have to sign on or he won't support me mm-hmm. and it's a it's a you know a, a boys club and everybody pats each other on the back and they want to set up an environment where everybody stays in power and what happens is that power corrupts absolutely and mm-hmm. absolute power corrupts. And so they get to a position where they enjoy the power and they don't want to lose the power. And that starts, they, they, it, it strokes their ego and they start to feel, uh, you know, like they're bigger than anything. And, and that's ego taking over. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, ego is not necessarily good or evil. It is in itself. An ego and an ego is, is in everybody and it could be used healthily, uh, to motivate yourself. It could be used unhealthily to say, look at me. Like, like a lot of the, like a lot of the, uh, chest banging athletes that we have today. Like, right. look what I did. I made a basket. Yeah, right. Like, well, good for you. <laughs> look at you. Can you imagine if like an Emmy acceptance speech was like yeah, that? I just want to go and smack my chest. Fuck go, yeah. Yeah. Crush the Emmy on the yeah, ground. Exactly. Tear, rip my tuxedo out. You know, go, <laughs> ah, beat my chest. It's like people would freak out, you know. And so, but I, I think, I, I think that's what happens. I think it's all, I think it's all man-made. And I use that specifically, man-made. I think there, if there were more women in, in power around the world, I think we'd have less of this, of mm-hmm. these issues and, I don't, I just don't think that they don't feel and think and operate from the same point of view. Men look for power. Women look for unity in their nature. 
Interesting. Do you know what I mean? What if we do forcible sex change operations on world leaders? Only if I can watch the video. <laughs> I mean, take that male ego and that and that and that uh, absolute power corrupting absolutely to its extreme, and we go to Russia this week, where Vladimir Putin um, claimed victory in the elections again. He was president for eight years, and the constitution said he had to step down, so he just made himself prime minister. And now, four years later, he's before or. Eight years later, he's back, and people are fearing it's going to be another – it's actually a six-year term, so it's going to be another 12 years of him in office. And here is – and there's widespread allegations of fraud. International monitoring groups said he stole this election. They were carouseling voters, which means they were busing voters from one polling place to another, so they would vote multiple times. <laughs> and in his tearful acceptance speech that night, um, listen to – it's of course, it starts with him, and then it's interestingly a female translator. They often do that to soften their image, soften maybe, it, yeah. while they're saying horrific things. But here is him protesting a little too much that the elections were fair and honest. A victorious and emotional Vladimir Putin gave a rallying cry, repeatedly insisting on the fairness of the vote. Thanks to the overwhelming support of our voters, this is a fair and honest victory. <laughs> That's the most amazing quote. Due to the overwhelming support, yeah. it's a fair election. I had it rigged, so if it was yeah. pretty close, it would tip in my favor. Anytime you have to say, this was a fair and honest <laughs> election, let me repeat that. It was a fair, then it uh, clearly wasn't. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's Russian politics. Um, you know, people around the world could look at uh, our country and the, the craziness and archaic way that we approach electing our leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, you know, we try to be as fair as we possibly can. Now we are, we are governed and guided by media. That's mm. what drives our elections. But in the end, it's one person, one vote going in there and, and hopefully making a difference. Um, there you don't know. It's vote often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, everyone votes as many times as they want, apparently, if they're in your favor and they keep people away who are not in certain regions. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't I don't think it's any surprise to the Western world that this is going on. Yeah. To 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 instill people's belief that it was a fair election. He, he announced before the elections that because there were all these protests, he was going to install two cameras per 90,000 voting station. So 180,000 webcams that were streamed online like. Like a silent webcam in the corner is going to be able to pick up the same guy walking into 90,000 different places. It's impossible to even monitor. Yeah. And then, and then later in that speech, he said, I promised you victory. We have won. Long live Russia. You can't promise victory when it's a fair election. You can't guarantee a victory. Well, everybody does that. Everybody pronounces that they're going to win and you have to. Even in our elections here, they say, and we're going to win in there and we're going to take that state and we're going to do this. And, <laughs> right. We're and then take- like Howard Dean, ah! <laughs> yeah. it was like, whoa. Yeah. A, a whole promising campaign imploded with a scream. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. All because someone either turn the microphone up or he didn't know he had that microphone so close to him or something. Had there been just a boom mic in the room and you heard him say, and we're going to go on. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, okay, he's charged up. But when it was this close, it's like, wow, he sounds crazy. Yeah. Well, also he just has the most awkward, like smile when he's like, when he's the pleased, 
Howard yeah. Dean looks strange. Yeah. He's a very, he's like, it's like a this place jaw, yeah. kind of like, he's never smiled before, 40 year old virgin style. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. And it's kind of uh, like, like Gingrich always looks like he's taking a crap. <laughs> His head's bent down a little bit. And he's While like, judging you. Somewhat of a little bit of a grimace, and he, you know, speaks very well. Yeah. He speaks very well, but, you know. While he's taking a shit, he's, he's a judging crap. you. Exactly right. That's hilarious. Um, moments after the vote, um, Took place actually almost after Putin himself and his wife Ludmila. 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 Ludmila, it's time for a treat. Remember, I told you that if I win election, I can go back door on you. Yes. I, 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 I said if you win by landslide. It will be landslide. Just let me make one phone call. By, by landslide, you mean your penis in my? Oh, in the landslide, yes. Well, only if we can watch it on video. I need to watch this video. <laughs> Moments after he placed his own ballot in the box, as did his wife, uh, protesters, topless female protesters, rushed in and tried to steal the ballot box with his vote in it. Um, this is a group. Uh, you, you're passing by that operative word there. Yeah. Topless. Oh, yeah, yeah. Topless. What's the point of that? I mean, because they're topless, this is the only way it's going to get on international television. I'm talking about it now all the way across the world. <laughs> if they were not topless, would you have brought this up? Couldn't care less about Russian <laughs> protests. Now I know where your priorities are. <laughs> I'd like to see and I like video, them. actually. <laughs> um, yeah, they, but they were actually anti-Putin protesters. They had signs written on their naked chest saying, I steal for Putin, Kremlin rats, and Putin is a thief. Isn't that it, funny? Because all through college, that's all we wanted was Putin. <laughs> that's right. Mm-hmm. Putin on the Ritz. And <laughs> the Ritz is my penis. Ooh. Right. I that was far too overt. I apologize. That's all right. It'll be edited out. <laughs> it will not be. Oh my god! Time to edit shit. Shit's going straight out, man. Um, Walter White leads a secret life. You know who else leads a secret life? Apparently, it came out this week. Tiger Woods, and not just a it secret, just came up this week. No, no, not the secret life that we know about oh. with all of his all of his girls, uh-huh. all, all of his slandering ways. He a, a couple of years ago seriously considered giving up his golf career to become a Navy SEAL. There's a book that uh, just came out this last week, and um, it's called The Big Miss. And in it, he told his golfing – it was written by his golf coach, Hank Haney. And in it, his former swing coach uh, says that Tiger would always tell him about his desire to become a Navy SEAL, and he, in fact, was training with the SEALs. He um, he was really – he's ready to live it all behind for military life. He took dozens of trips to naval bases in a program that was very close to the training of a Navy SEAL, and they were going to make an exemption for him age-wise to become a SEAL. Um, he did parachuting, self-defense, urban warfare simulations, shooting training. Do you see this coming? He seems to me, even though he was a flander, seems to me too mild-mannered to be a SEAL. He – no wonder he hasn't won a tournament in a long time. His, <laughs> his focus is on other things. Yeah, right. Gosh. How do you um, get your focus back that way? Yeah. Can you imagine? Navy SEAL. Um, you know, good for him. I mean, but don't you have to be in the Navy to actually be? Not when you're you don't a have to, golfer. I mean, don't you, you don't have to go through boot camp and all that stuff. You have to, you have to go through that. I would love to just that. That's a reality show right there. <laughs> yeah, Tiger Boot Camp. Tiger Seal. Tiger Seal. It's, yeah, I mean, there's a picture of him on top of a tank with his white polo shirt, Nike hat, and a thumbs up, like a real cheesy, that's woodsy right, yeah. thumbs up. Tiger in boots. It's Tiger in boots. Tiger in boots. Hey, 
We'll get, we'll make it a cartoon and, and <laughs> have him do the voiceover for that too. I will put my balls in your hole. <laughs> it's obvious. So there's talk this week that, you know, still the war drums towards attacking Iran are happening. Benjamin Netanyahu just met yesterday with, um, Barack Obama in the White House and Obama actually, for one of the first times, is sounding almost Republican in this sound clip of, of, of him kind of sounding like he's being a little belligerent towards Iran as well, which is not usually his M.O. I've said that when it comes to preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, I will take no options off the table. And I mean what I say. That includes all elements of American power. A political effort aimed at isolating Iran, a diplomatic effort to sustain our coalition and ensure that the Iranian program is monitored, an economic effort that imposes crippling sanctions, and yes, a military effort to be prepared for any contingency. There it is, man. Did you expect this kind of talk? You know, no, and he didn't consult me on any of this prior to this speech, <laughs> which I'm a little disappointed. Normally in. you get calls about this. Yes, things. I get calls about this. Um, you know what's interesting is, that, and what the Republicans would have to try to do, and they've tried to do it, but the, the reality is, is that it's just untrue, that they try to paint this president as a liberal when it comes to foreign policy. Right. He's, he's a hawk. He's anything but that. Yeah. Which may disappoint the liberal sanction of the Democratic Party. And maybe rightfully so, that he's at least, at the bare minimum, a moderate when it comes to this. But when you talk about uh, ability to establish a decorum, uh, he is light years ahead of George W. Bush. Oh, yeah. Who had no diplomacy whatsoever. He was a... A bull in a china shop. Yeah. It was like he was uh, the American bull in the world was a china shop and he was blasting through <laughs> it. And it's like, I don't care. Dead or alive. Mission accomplished. What the? Yeehaw. With us or against us. With us against us. Live. You know, it's like he was, he was, uh, you know, ridiculous. How so much like the style of isn't diplomacy. It? Yeah, but, but it is. It, it's so much. I mean, you're right. Obama's much more hawkish in, 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 in a lot of ways, much more drone attacks, killed much more of yeah. Al Qaeda. Yeah. Yet he just says it in a nice, soft spoken, measured kind of way. Yeah. And you don't think. That's exactly right. And it's, I mean, and, but he, he, there is a, a, a far greater amount of, of diplomacy that he incorporates in his policy than anything else. And plus there was, you know, a talk about hawkish, uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm. No one ever, for 10 years, this was like Osama bin Laden. Are we going to get him? Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. We'll never get him. We should get him. We got to get him. We, gotta, we got him. <laughs> it was like a week later. What happened last week? Was that, did we, did we, is it gone? It's over and done with. <laughs> right. It's like nobody's even talking about it. Yeah. It was, it would talk about mission accomplished. It was like, got him, done, dealt with, move on. Yeah. And he got credit for like a second for second. it. Second. And then and move on. That's another great example of just how disingenuous the polarization of our politics is. It's like the Republicans can't even in their discourse say we hate him on domestic policy, but he's great on foreign policy. No, we just need say, a new guy. You can't say you that. You can't say that. No, if you're on the opposition, you can't say anything good. That's why we need to – Unless a it's universal good. Right. It's like, and it appears today President uh, Obama saved a child, a crippled child <laughs> from a burning building. And then you got to the, – the, the Republican candidates – 
Well, it was uh, good. Uh, I thought he took a little too much time to get in there to save the crippled child, but uh, I would have been in there first, you know. And <laughs> right. about, oh, I have to applaud the, uh, you know, the, the effort. Um, and if Obama had his way, the child wouldn't have been born because it would have been birth control used. <laughs> exactly. They'll spin it some in way. Some way, somehow. <laughs> to make it. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's uh it's unfortunate, but but also he said in that while he's still saying military options are on the table, he's again being being wise about the way he presents it, and he says, but look, there's too much loose talk of war. The Republicans yeah. in these debates are using attacking Iran as a way to get applause breaks, right? And that's not. That's not cool that he's saying that's that's bringing up the price of oil globally because now it's people are freaking out. And so there, it's increasing demand for Iran's oil and making the sanctions have less effect, which is probably pushing us closer to war with them. Well, it, it it's all about money anyway, isn't it? In the long run, it's right. all about money. So then it comes back to morality again. So is there – I want to read you a quote from your show's creator, Vince Gilligan, speaking about morality and how he has been a little bit changed okay. by Breaking Bad. He said, I have no intention of excusing misdeeds or murders. This is from, from an article, excellent article about your show on the Daily Beast by Andrew Romano. He says, I have no intention of excusing misdeeds or murders, but monstrous people don't bewilder and terrify me quite as much as they used to. Because I feel like I've had some version of them in my head for the past four years. I recognize them as human. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a good thing or a bad thing, but on some weird level, as someone who lives in the modern world, it gives me some small measure of comfort. Hmm. Do you feel that? Do you, do you feel like, has, has playing this role made you understand evil to a place where you could see yourself ever capable of it? Well, I, again, I wouldn't say it's evil. Um, and perhaps it's because this character lives inside of me and I don't judge him, um, from an, from a, you know, outside world kind of thing is that I think what I've learned by playing Walter White is that even the meekest person among us is dangerous if provoked, hmm. if given the right set of circumstances, if I found out what really is that deep, dark place in you that would motivate you to do anything. Why are you if, talking about it? I'll fight you right now. I'm that's ready. right. Let's go. Um, if I was able to find that out and push those buttons, I could turn you into a killing machine. Hmm. If you felt you or your kind or your mother or your sister or whatever was threatened, physically threatened, um, but, what, whatever that is, I, I think you – as a law-abiding person, right. could become a criminal. But that's still – sure, criminal as far as having committed crimes, but that's still morally might be acceptable if it's in self-defense or if it's no, not to protect your family. You're saying just like revenge. You're yeah, saying you – could, You could explode. Have you ever seen red, the term seen red, where you, where you get so emotional and so explosive and angry and uh, that, that you – at that moment, you could – commit a crime you could cause damage to yourself or others and therefore was the creation of that term you know a, a temporary insanity as far as a plea sure you know what i mean sure. uh, have you ever been in that position yeah, where, yeah. I've, I've been pushed to places where i didn't know what was coming out of me right so if you happened to be on the street at that time that happened you could have thrown a rock over an inter overpass or or done something and accidentally kill someone and mm -hmm. a horrific accident was caused or right. you could 
Or, I mean, it's possible because at that moment you're out of your head in anger, in fear, in whatever. And that's a real thing. That's a real impulse. Has it ever happened to you? Have you seen red like that? Yeah, I, I, I had a vision about uh, 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 one time. I had a vision about taking this girlfriend of mine. She was an ex-girlfriend, and she was she was stalking me and harassing me, and she was crazy. Jesus, out of her mind. She was on drugs, and uh, and she was out of her mind. But I reached my limit. I reached. I I used every thing that I thought of that could get her to stop her behavior, mm-hmm. and it wasn't working. So I had this vision of opening my door and grabbing her by the hair and taking her into my apartment in New York and slamming her head against my brick wall. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. And it was real. And I, and then it scared the hell out of me because I thought, Oh my God, I just saw this happening. Was this a flash forward? Is this going to happen? <laughs> am I precog? But we are. We think yeah. we have sense. Thoughts we become have realities and instincts that. This is going to turn bad, right? And, mm-hmm. and it, a lot of times it works because mm-hmm. we go, there's something wrong here. There's a vibe here. I want to get out of this place. There's something dark in, in this. Yeah. Right. And you get out of it and you hear, Oh man, the fight broke out. And it was like, I, I knew I was, I knew something was going to happen and I need to get out of there. Well, I knew something was going to happen. And uh, so I called the police before anything else. And they, wow. yeah, it was, a, it was a, it, and, but that experience, you know, now I know what it's like and I've incorporated some of that work in, in that experiential time in, in Walter White to, to, to know what it's like to be so frightened mm-hmm. that you, you, you rigidly act with aggression. Mm. I do amazing, uh, research for this show. I have that ex-girlfriend here at the door. Please come welcome. on in. Please welcome <laughs> blankety blank. So now you mentioned she had a drug problem and your show is, is centered around drugs. Do you now have drug addicts or drug dealers coming up to you and looking at Walter White as sort of a hero or have you had experiences of people relating to you in that way? Well, usually it's a, it's a, it's sort of a stealth career, isn't it? If you're a <laughs> drug dealer. Hey, I cook my, <laughs> hey, I'm a drug dealer. You know, uh, so that, you know, but they you probably wouldn't. Assume you were going to call the cops on this. Have it ever been like, man, let no. me just tell you, so you've never met an act. Like- no, I mean, I've met some people who have said, uh, you've, your show really has it right because it's like freakish and I've been there and, you know, or my family is involved in crystal meth or whatever. And I got out or I'm still in treatment or mm-hmm. there's that, but right. there, there, there hasn't been any, uh, any, uh, you know, Hey, let's talk about the work. I do the same thing. <laughs> you got to hold your Bunsen burner at right. a slightly different angle. Yeah. Walter, can you tell me, how does your meth get out so big? I've got to change my recipe. Can you? Blue, get- blue sounds fantastic. They're always trying to get my recipe, and I go, uh-uh. <laughs> like grandma's lemon cake, you're not getting this either. <laughs> you ain't getting none of white's Mm-mm. blue, baby. Mm-mm. Well, there, there is... Aside from the prevalence of, of I- illegal drugs in this country, there's a huge onslaught of legal drugs that the pharmaceutical industry just pours on us. And uh, it's exactly like making meth, but it's just legalized versions of, of these drugs. I saw a commercial just um, just last night that just struck me as maybe not the best idea, and it's some product they're selling in a late-night infomercial. Here's a sound clip from this commercial, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. For a sleep aid. You may be just not sleeping well. Millions of Americans now have trouble sleeping. That's why I recommend Altrol, America's number one selling all-natural sleeping. It's made of three unique sleep compounds, each proven to help induce sleep. L-tryptophan, valerian, and melatonin. Altrol is like three sleeping pills in one. 
Try Alteril for good natural sleep and the energy you need during the day. Believe it or not, this is a catheter. Oh, that, and then the next ad's about a catheter. It's totally different. This is what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> you just like a little contact in your penis at all times. Just time. like it at all time. Actually, I should go to the bathroom, but... No, no, I know. I just went. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... Because I wear Depends adult diapers. Depends. <laughs> you can depend on it. If you are looking to win three Emmys in your life... <laughs> that's right. And be, not have to worry about missing your award announcement that's during right. the ceremony. Friends, have you been scared shitless? Well, where depends. And you're always ready for whatever happens. <laughs> you get the good idea that people are marketing on television without a prescription. Three sleeping pills combined into one. Well, I think it's it's holistic, right? It's it's melatonin and uh, tryptophan and something else. Sure. So it's like um, it's it's herbal. Well, so that's legit then. And so yeah, why not? Tryptophan is like in in Turkey, they say. So that's you, true. Yeah. So that's why I get eating, so sleepy, get sleepy after, after Thanksgiving. Meal. That's true. Um, so I don't know. Maybe 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 that's a a better way because people get used to taking that and and you know perhaps maybe it works as a placebo where you take it and you go, I do feel sleepy. Good night. <laughs> they just put the word sleep and a bunch of Z's on the pill. Sleep. Why are I don't know that Z's are that much sleep. You think it's the Z's. Oh, you count Z's. You count you Z's. You count the Z's and you, zzz, you, you <laughs> zip off to sleep. So a very interesting story I read this week. It's about the brain science behind economics. Basically, there's this new field called neuroeconomics, I guess, that is studying the brain science behind morality and how we make decisions, whether they're economic or any decision basically in life. And I thought you'd be interested in it because it sort of, you know, plays to things that you've been grappling with while playing the character of Walter White. Um, Basically, over the last decade, researchers have been combining those disparate fields to understand how humans make decisions. And Paul Zak, in his book, The Moral Molecule, that's coming out this last week, um, explores how a chemical in the brain called oxytocin compels cooperation in society. It, it, it uh, was thought to be released originally only during childbirth and sex. But in rodents, it was also known to allow animals to tolerate their their burrow mates and all these animals that are very close to them so this the writer of this book um started thinking he wonders if, if economists have the wrong view of the world he started realizing that countries with higher levels of trust are more prosperous and with low levels of trust have very few economic transition transactions and don't create wealth so he started to make a correlation between burrow mates and trusting a stranger being able to let people near you and thought maybe it's the same mechanism. And he started doing tests to show whether we release oxytocin in other instances. And it turns out we do. If someone sends you money via the computer, it releases this thing and also makes you more inclined to reciprocate those positive feelings. Um, and uh, when you give someone a hug, it releases the same chemical. And he's actually found a biology for reciprocation. And that's why he calls it this moral molecule. Uh, do you, but he also said, like you were talking about, um, how males, uh, have this ego and this strong aggressiveness that kind of takes away our kindness and our empathy. And, and it, he actually proved that testosterone inhibits the release of oxytocin, mm. which in turn inhibits trust. Um, do you think Walter White, obviously he just has a low level of oxytocin? 
Uh, but he has a lot of Oxycontin. So, um, <laughs> you got it from, from, from Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, no problem there. A little <laughs> doctor, doctor shopping. Um, that's, that's really interesting. And I, and I think there's, there's something there as a release of chemicals naturally in the body that either, uh, prohibit us from feeling something or enable us to feel something, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, like stress is that, and in, that induces a, a lack of intimacy, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you're stressed out, you can't relax. Um, and so people find ways to, to acquire that moving past the stress as opposed to treating the stress. They'll treat the symptom of stress, which is alcohol or self-medication to, right. in order for them to feel what they want to feel. And they get used to that, that system. And, uh, and that's where people get into trouble. Um, I, I just I think generally is, it's true, um, that this seems to have been right for a man's story. Um, because <laughs> men find themselves getting into these positions more often. They're, you know, it stems back from early man going out and, and uh, hunting, hunt or be hunted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and perhaps the woman was gathering and nesting and that sort of thing. And those are, those are innate in our DNA as, as males and females. And there's only so much that can change that over time. It does change quite a bit, but not necessarily always to the better. We, we have changed to the better, certainly because we in our, except for Rush Limbaugh, uh, <laughs> we have a sensibility that, that men and women should and must be equal on on those equal rounds and um i think it's i think it's important to explore that um but to me it 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 really starts to bring up questions of morality we talked about a little bit last week on the podcast too um last week on last week on earth because um when you when science keeps exploring further and further figuring out the chemical basis of things that we experience just as emotions and just as things that we think are organic and real when they're manipulatable by science to me it starts to create all these questions as to whether there can even be an inherent moral system or is it all just zeros and ones and are we all just programmed is there like a binary code to who we are as right. people i mean i in a way there is i mean i i, I would um in my own personal sensibility, I would take science over religion all the time. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not a spiritual person. There is a sensibility um, uh, that I believe in that is is for the greater good, and to believe in God or a strong uh, uh, the power is um, to me is all encompassing and all tolerant. You no know, matter what the chemical makeup is, yes. it's, it's still some greater There's some design. greater power. There's some greater good. And that's kind of like the the goal to reach is that we're all looking for that bigger message in our lives. And we don't get so myopic that we look at, at the people of Iran and think they're enemies. Mm-hmm. They're not enemies. Right. There might be a bad leader there who's yeah, some like, dick who's got too much testosterone pumping. Yeah, that's right. But we do at least have the remedy here on earth as, as whatever the causes are, we still have drugs we can do to relieve stress and we have alcohol. And it came out this week that Rick Santorum, although he's high and mighty these days and doesn't believe too much in partying and promiscuous sex at Penn state, his fraternity brothers revealed this last week that he used to be called the rooster and the rooster would party and taught girls how to chug beer at fraternity parties 
And they even had signals that if either, the, if any of them had a girl on their floor, they would put a call certain, the rooster. Call the rooster. You'd clean it up. And he would cock a doodle doo. <laughs> exactly. So, do you think people should be should be held accountable for their life actions? Do you think it's fair to become much more conservative in later life and not be held accountable to that? Yes. Or do people? But shouldn't people also remember who they are and, and not be so high and mighty about it? No, I mean, I, it, it depends on his reaction to it. If he says, yeah, there was a time when I was growing up and maturing that, yeah, I did a lot of things that I look back on now and I would never want to do again. But that's, and I think that's fair. And I wouldn't, if that information was there, I wouldn't, that wouldn't sway me to vote for or against that candidate, no matter who he is. Um, because I think all of us look back and there's a, there's periods in our lives where we, have done embarrassing things or, or age appropriate behavior. If you're in college and your nickname is the rooster and you're chugging beer and hitting on girls, that's what you should be doing in college. <laughs> totally. Don't apologize for that. This Say, is true. yeah, those were the times. This is true. <laughs> yeah. And no apologies now for the thunder round. TSA asks woman to pump her breasts. The TSA is getting more and more far-reaching. There's a woman going through now. Apparently, you can't bring empty bottles through uh, TSA now. They made her, and she had a breast pump electronic machine. They didn't know what it was. She told them it's a breast pump machine. They said, go to the restroom, fill the bottles to get on the plane. Are we getting too insane <laughs> with checking passengers? You must that's, travel a lot. That's pretty crazy. Well, coming from someone who's still being breastfed, I <laughs> appreciate Mother Nature. Um, and stop biting, Brian. Ow, ow, ow. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, well, I think there's, there's, when you give power to a group of people who are, you know, um, you know, uh, this whole TSA was, developed after 9-11 and it was like hello yeah. we have jobs and i think <laughs> right. there was such a hurry to f fill these positions and there was such a hunger to to work that they were able to take in any numbskull you know <laughs> now there there are a few people I, but i'm buying security large, yeah, show us your titties I, yeah i don't i don't think this is the highest level of uh <laughs> of security that we have this is probably true. Yeah. So I think people, uh, and, and quite frankly, then a human element comes in, in, involved and it's like, uh, power. Someone who has, I've, I've been here two years and now I'm in charge. So I'm going to have you do this. You know, who knows? Yeah. Somebody who's, who's known for his power, Mike Tyson, it came out this last week. He's going to be performing a one man show in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand, an actual acting performance about his life. But a, a, a dramatized, scripted show. Yeah. Are you nervous about the competition? I I think, um, you know, remember Magic Johnson had the magic hour one oh, day? Oh, yes. It's like, Classic talk show. And you think that it's going, oh, man, he's so charismatic. It's going <laughs> to translate. It doesn't translate. It does not translate. There's a whole thing. Uh, the I, That's a crash and burn if I've ever heard one. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no way that Mike Tyson would be able to actually be able to understand <laughs> – the story structure that's necessary to put on a show and, and to a yeah. beginning, middle and end. Unless He's maybe, a fighter. unless maybe he goes Brando style and has the that's lines some, fed to him in his ear. Oh, I wonder. 
It might be. Ah. It might be. Maybe there's been there's probably been voices in his head his whole life, so it wouldn't be unfamiliar. Yeah. If that was the case, and we found that Punch out, it, I would go. Good for you, man. You found a trick. You found the trick. Right? You figured it out. Um, The Brazier bandits have been brought to justice. This is a big, big case. I missed it. Oh, you missed this huge story. I I must have. Police in Florida have arrested two women. They say stole thousands of dollars worth of bras from Victoria's Secret stores in Boca Raton and Boynton Beach. Boynton Beach. That's the sound breasts make when they come out of the bra. Yeah. Boynton. And the sound I make when I see that happen. Boing. And uh, apparently they were the dumbest criminals in the world. They would steal thousands of dollars of brassieres from Victoria's Secret. They would go to a different Victoria's Secret nearby, same outfits, no disguises, on surveillance cameras, and return the goods to get the cash for it. Oh, I see. So they didn't have to have a receipt, and they were able to get cash? I guess it's a very liberal return policy. At very Victoria's liberal. That, maybe that is the secret. We'll, t- we'll have bad business. It's Bad a, economics. There's an abundance of of liberalism there. Yeah, there is. They yeah. just want people in sexy, that's like sexy the, bras. That's like the triple D of liberalism in a, as far as a return policy. It is, right? Yeah. Do you think that they're clearly not at the level of criminality of intelligence of a Walter White? No, no, God. Walter's much more careful than that. He is. And, but probably, do you think he would ever resort to, to other crime or do you think it's, it's strictly cooking meth? No, murder. no, he's, he's found his, he's found his place. Uh, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows the chemistry. So that's what he's doing. But when I was first starting out as an actor, I, I would work for a security company and I, in not too far from here in Hollywood, there was a, a, a market and it had the two way mirrors. And I was up in the two way mirrors watching people steal things. Really? It was like, it was the easiest thing in the world because whenever you see someone walk into a, a, a store of any kind, and they're not looking at the products, but they're they're looking around. <laughs> it's like, hello, you're not shopping. Did you bust all of them? Did you ever let anybody yeah. go? No, we busted them all. Every single one. Every single one. And was that kind of some good character research? Why excuses? I dragged them down to the pavement. There was a little old lady who stole dog food because her her dog was very skinny, and I I pushed her down to the pavement, <laughs> shoved her head, and you know just eat dirt. No, um, no, it was it was a fun little system, and. uh but it was it was necessary. I mean, some of these people were doing things that were crazy. One guy came in and was stealing. He stole maybe a dozen dog leashes and shoved them, you know, in his jacket pocket. And I'm thinking, really? You're willing to get caught stealing dog leashes? Is that really what you need? Wow, maybe he had 12 angry dogs at home. Yeah, and he exactly. just desperately needed them. I need to get them on a leash. You I don't know you. what someone's situation in life is. Uh, yeah, that might have been the thing that made him break bad. Maybe he was, he, like, maybe he was a, a pack of dogs, like he was going to run the Iditarod or something like that. And he, I just don't have them on leashes. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd win this damn thing. <laughs> um, leashes are important in life because if you don't have something restraining, you you know who knows we could all become criminals overnight yeah like a cock ring you're saying yeah something is it no were you going somewhere else I, i've come comfortable with cock ring. you were kind of indicating your crotch and so i, I said well, yeah. hmm, i don't know what was that just yeah. because i'm nude and have a cock ring on does not mean i want to mention on oh, the podcast well you should have mentioned that before i, I didn't feel like know. that's a good place any to end because i do not <laughs> want that being discussed even. no we won't discuss it um at Brian Cranston on Twitter. Please follow him at Breaking Bad underscore AMC to follow his amazing show. It's one of my favorite shows on television. It is my favorite show currently. You have movies coming out. Argo in the near future. Rock of Ages. Total Recall. But John Carter looks amazing to me. Yeah, it's fun. Comes out March 9th. Please check it out. 
Uh, check my stuff out at Ben Glebe on Twitter, hashtag last week on earth. You can follow also on Facebook or Tumblr, youtube.com slash Ben Glebe or Ben for tour dates. I'll be in Indianapolis March 29th through 31st. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It was here. fun. And since this is the last week on earth, it was nice to meet you. It was and a goodbye. real pleasure. And, and, uh, you know, it's been fun to no. quote Shatner's last line. And <laughs> is that right? as Captain Kirk, it's been, it's been fun. fun. I will leave you with Sublime's I saw red. Until last week, next week, this has been Last Week on Earth. This has been a production of Smodcast Internet Radio.